Section 7, Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 4 of The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 3, Jurisdiction. Chapter 3, Bishops. The Spanish tactics of delay were successful. Pius V died, May 1, 1572, without having published a sentence. Whether one was framed or not is a disputed question. Salazar tells us that it was drawn up, but that Pius, before publication, desired to submit it to Philip and sent it by his chief chamberlain, Alessandro Casal who was detained by bad weather and other accidents until after the death of the Pope. Lorente gives the details of the sentence as absolving Carranza of the charges, but maintaining the prohibition of the commentaries in the vernacular, with permission to translate it into Latin after removing the doubtful expressions. Simancas, who was one of the inquisitors employed on the case in Rome, says positively that Pius died without framing a sentence, that when Carranza's friends claimed that he had done so and urged his successor, Gregory the Thirteenth, to publish it, the latter offered 20,000 crowns to anyone who would produce it and thus save him the task of reviewing the case. However this may be, Pius was convinced of Carranza's innocence. He allowed the commentaries to be publicly sold in Rome, when the fiscal Salgado petitioned for its suppression, he made no answer, and when Salgado insisted upon it in the congregation, he replied angrily that he did not consider it subject to suppression, and that they had better not by persistence force him formally to approve it by a motu proprio. Gregory the Thirteenth was not liable to the reproach bestowed by Zuniga on Pius V of indifference to personal and worldly considerations. He was quite accessible to them and realized fully the importance to the Holy See of keeping on good terms with the Spanish master of Italy. His experience as the legate Buon Campagni had sufficiently acquainted him with Philip's temper and, when Carranza's friends naturally expected him to take the matter up where the death of Pius had left it, he insisted on going over it personally from the beginning. As he could give but fragmentary attention to it, he was thus able to postpone committing himself for some years. This gave Philip opportunity to gather fresh testimony. By means not the most gentle, the survivors of Carranza's friends who had approved of the commentaries, were induced to retract. The three bishops, Guerrero, Blanco, and Delgado, condemned propositions by the hundred, drawn from works submitted to them as Carranzas, and they exculpated themselves from their approval of the commentaries by saying they had not seen his MS writings, and, in view of his reputation, they had sought to give a Catholic sense wherever possible. Other opinions were industriously collected. Gregory made a decent show of resistance to admitting fresh testimony at this late date, but yielded to Philip's threats of what he might find necessary to do in case his desires were thwarted, and thus excuses, if not reasons, were afforded for reaching a different conclusion from that of Pius V. 
as the time approached at which it was understood that the long protracted case would be terminated philip's anxiety increased an autograph letter of february sixteenth fifteen seventy five to pope gregory strongly urged carranza's speedy condemnation in view of the dangers which he had represented to pious and asked the fulfillment of a promise to communicate him the sentence before publication whether such promise was made or not gregory refused to submit it to him but intimation of what it was to be reached him and on april twentieth he wrote vigorously to zuniga expressing surprise that the pope did not keep his word as for carranza he was so thoroughly convicted of heresy that according to inquisitorial routine he ought to be burnt or at least reconciled after abjuring all kinds of heresy to allow him to abjure for vehement suspicion of heresy with temporary suspension from his see assumes that in time he will return to occupy the primatial church of toledo which would cause disturbance and scandal impossible to contemplate the pope can well conceive the dangers which may follow in spain and elsewhere by the mere example of such a criminal in such a position even if the suspension were perpetual yet if god should remove his holiness a successor might lift the suspension unless carranza is wholly deprived this was passion and eloquence wasted for the sentence had been pronounced six days before on april fourteenth fifteen seventy six whatever promise gregory had made was kept to the letter but not to the spirit by announcing it to him on april eleventh its provisions were shrewdly framed to turn the whole affair to the advantage of the holy see by keeping carranza as a potential sword of damocles hanging over philip's head and meanwhile absorbing the revenues of the see of toledo the tenor of the articles was as communicated to philip the archbishop of toledo will be declared vehemently suspect of sundry errors and as such will be required to abjure them he will be suspended and removed from the administration of his church for five years and subsequently at the pleasure of the pope and the holy see during this time he will be recluded to a monastery in orviedo and not allowed to depart without special license of the pope and the holy see the pope will appoint an administrator of the church of toledo with disposition of all the fruits since the date of sequestration and during the suspension which he will convert to the benefit of the church and other pious uses after deducting pensions expenses and debts for the support of the archbishop there shall be assigned a monthly allowance of a thousand gold crowns some salutary penances will be imposed on him his catechism will be prohibited to be possessed read or printed the errors of which he was declared vehemently suspect amounted to sixteen professedly drawn from his writings as they were merely the peg on which to hang the sentence they need not be recapitulated here and it suffices to say that on april twelfth they were taken with the abjuration by giantonio fascinetti afterwards innocent the eleventh to the castle of san angelo where carranza obediently signed the abjuration the publication of the sentence was made with a solemnity benefiting the conclusion of a case which for seventeen years had occupied the attention of christendom on april fourteenth carranza was brought from his prison to the hall of constantine where gregory occupied the papal throne under a canopy 
the cardinals sat on benches and about a hundred other spectators stood around after the opening formalities gregory handed a roll containing the sentence to alonzo castellon the secretary in the case who read it aloud it was very long reciting the vicissitudes of the affair from the beginning and concluded with the articles as stated above then carranza read his abjuration as simancas tells us with impassive indifference as though it related to another after which he was led to the feet of the pope who expiated on the mercy shown to him and told him he might expect more if he lived as he ought he was then handed to the captain of the guard to be conveyed to the dominican convent of santa maria sopra minerva and as he was led out in passing cardinal gambara he quietly asked him to have his effects transferred to the convent evidently there was no sense of guilt or humiliation it was a fitting end to gregory's disgraceful part in the tragedy that when on april twentieth he formally notified philip and the chapter of toledo of the result he mournfully expressed his regret that he had been compelled to condemn in place of acquitting as he had hoped as a penance the pope ordered carranza visit the seven churches on saturday of easter week april twenty eighth and offered him his own litter and horses for his servants which he declined it was noised abroad and the whole population was stirred to accompany him for the compassion felt for him was universal to avoid such a demonstration gregory changed the day to monday the twenty-third but notwithstanding this the throng of coaches and crowds of people changed the penance into a triumph in the churches he was received with all honor and at the lateran he celebrated mass but towards the end of the day a strangury commenced and on his return to the convent he took to his bed never to leave it the disease made rapid progress during which the pope repeatedly sent consolatory messages and on april thirtieth his apostolic benediction with an indulgent a poena et a culpa the same day carranza made a solemn declaration before his secretaries affirming his unbroken adhesion to the faith he received with fervor the last consolations of religion and passed away at three a m on may second he had entered his prison a vigorous man of fifty-six and had left it to die a broken old man of seventy-three that an autopsy should have been ordered indicates that immediately doubts had arisen whether the death had been natural the physicians reported some slight ulcers in one kidney and three stones in the gallbladder but in a position to do no harm and they attributed the retention to some carnosities if suspicion existed of poison they found no public utterance that has reached us yet in an age when the removal of an impediment was a recognized resource of state policy the opportune and sudden death of carranza is at least suggestive we have seen how energetically philip remonstrated against his being left in a position in which his return to toledo was possible his resumption of his see would have inflicted an incurable wound on the authority and influence of the inquisition and have covered the monarch with mortification it would have led to complications which in the temper of the age which would have been insoluble the injustice meted out to carranza had rendered his death a necessity if he was not branded as a heretic or disqualified as a bishop philip and he could not exist together in spain 
Besides, so long as Carranza lived, he was a dangerous weapon in the hands of the papacy to thwart Spanish policy by threats of removing the suspension or to extort concessions as the price of maintaining it. To attribute his sudden death to the zeal of Spanish agents in Rome or to secret orders sent in advance would do no injustice to a prince who did not shrink from the executions of Montigny and Lanuza or the assassinations of Escobedo and of William the Silent. It suited him, however, to accept it piously as a special dispensation of providence. June 11th he replied to Gregory's letters of April 11th and 16th, conveying copies of the sentence and abjuration. To persons, he said, of great learning and experience in Spain, the sentence was too lenient, but he recognized the Pope's holy zeal and that God's hand had applied the proper remedy to avert greater evils. Yet subsequently, Morales, writing by Philip's order, concludes his account, They say that he apparently died as a saint, which I believe, and that it was really so. The Lord reserved for him the other life a signal mercy which he grants to those whom it pleases him in one respect the inquisition was triumphant the commentaries which had been approved by the council of trent and by pius the fourth and pius the fifth was condemned and prohibited with callous disregard of consistency the work remained in the successive issues of the spanish index until seventeen forty seven but was dropped in the latest one of seventeen ninety rome was even more persistent and retained it until eighteen ninety nine though it disappeared with much other antiquated lumber in the recension of nineteen hundred yet carranza's reputation as an orthodox champion of the church seems to have suffered little from his prosecution and condemnation cardinal cuiroga the inquisitor-general who in fifteen seventy seven succeeded him in the see of toledo caused his portrait to be placed with those of his predecessors erected a tomb to his memory and in june fifteen seventy eight performed solemn obsequies for him which lasted for a fortnight odoricus reynaldus the official analyst of the holy see and cardinal palavencini the official historian of the council of trent unite in saying that nothing serious was found against him only vehement suspicion and that on his deathbed he gave evidence not only of uncorrupted faith but of singular piety nicholas antonio tells us that for some mere presumptions in the absence of legitimate proof of admitted impiety he was ordered by abjuration to purge all suspicion of guilt balmes the champion of catholicism while admitting that on the delicate subject of justification his expressions lacked clearness asserts that beyond doubt in his own conscience before god he was wholly innocent the dispassionate judgment of posterity has condemned the inquisition in acquitting its victim if philip failed to blast the memory of carranza he at least succeeded in one of his objects for seventeen years he had wrongfully enjoyed carranza's sequestrated revenues which allowing for all deductions must have yielded him two or three millions of ducats much must have been spent in the endeavor to convict the rightful possessor but when the case was concluded outstanding engagements were repudiated 
During the trial in Rome, Don Lope de Avellaneda had borrowed 26,000 ducats to pay the salaries of the parties employed in the notoriously expensive litigation of the Curia, but the bills of exchange drawn to satisfy the indebtedness were returned dishonored. The Roman bankers were too important an adjunct of the Curia not to be efficiently protected. On April 10, 1577, Gregory wrote to the inquisitors, probably of Toledo, to collect the amount, with interest up to the date of payment, from the revenue of the archiepiscopal table of Toledo, enforcing the demand, if necessary, by excommunication, interdict, and the invocation of the secular arm. Philip evidently maintained his hold on the revenues until the consecration of Archbishop Quiroga in December 1577, and his administrator would allow no diversion of the funds. Gregory, in the sentence, had endeavored to provide for an accounting to him of the accumulations, but the effort was a failure. Like Philippe le Bel, in the analogous case of the Templars, Philip had a grip on the spoils which nothing could loosen. When, in 1581, Gregory sought to stimulate him to undertake an expedition against Queen Elizabeth and promised him financial assistance towards so pious an enterprise, it turned out that this aid was merely the Mesna profits of the See of Toledo, which he had collected and had long since consumed. The affair of Carranza seems to have been regarded as weakening the position of bishops and, with the customary audacity of the inquisitors in extending their jurisdiction, the tribunal of Cuenca boasted or threatened that it would arrest the bishop. The services of the incumbent, Pedro de Castro, in furnishing evidence against Carranza had been too recent to permit him to be hoisted by his own petard, and Valdez, in a letter of June seventeenth, fifteen sixty, rebuked the tribunal for its superserviceable zeal. We have seen how the bishops at the Council of Trent endeavored to protect themselves by reserving to the Pope exclusive right to pronounce sentence, but this was of small avail when he assumed the right to delegate his power as he pleased. When Sixtus V, January twenty-fifth, 1586, issued a commission to the Cardinal Archduke Albert of Austria as Inquisitor General of Portugal, it specifically subjected archbishops, bishops, and patriarchs to his jurisdiction and that of his subdelegates. As Portugal was under the Spanish crown, this served as a precedent when, in December 1629, the Inquisition desired to prosecute Gavino Milani, Archbishop of Oristano in Sardinia, against whom it had gathered evidence that, since his consecration in 1627, he had never been to confession or had celebrated Mass, that he was a blasphemer, that he had a familiar demon confined in a ring, etc., the Suprema submitted to Philip IV the Portuguese commission and asked him to instruct his ambassador to procure a similar one for Spain, or, failing this, to obtain a special brief for the case of Milani. Philip ordered the necessary letter to be drafted for his signature, but the effort failed. Milani was probably sent to Rome with the evidence, for he was deposed, being succeeded in 1635 by Pedro Vico while he did not die until 1641. In spite of this recognition of lack of jurisdiction over bishops, we have seen that in the quarrel with Manjare de Heredia, bishop of Majorca, 
1668, Inquisitor General Neithard claimed that the Inquisition could prosecute him criminally. He had the effrontery to assert, in a consulta of February 5, 1668, that its possession of this power was so notorious and so completely established in practice as to require neither argument nor demonstration, and the infatuated queen regent sustained him in summoning the bishop to appear for trial. The Inquisition continued the prosecution even after the expulsion of Nithard, and proceedings ceased only with the death of the bishop. The next case in which the Inquisition had to deal with a bishop was one which attracted much attention at the time, that of José Fernando de Toro, Bishop of Oviedo. We shall have to consider it hereafter in its relation with Illuminism and Molinism, and need only say here that he was an adept in the dangerous mysticism which mistook the promptings of the senses for divine impulses, and taught that union with God conferred impeccability. There was no doubt of his guilt, for he confessed freely when arraigned, and the Inquisition raised no question as to the exclusive papal jurisdiction. After elaborate investigation, Inquisitor General Ibanez de la Riva Herrera put the mass of testimony into shape and sent it to Clement the eleventh, November twenty seventh, seventeen o nine. On June seventh, seventeen ten, Clement authorized the imprisonment of Toro and the prosecution of the case, the results to be sent to him. After the death of Ibanez, a fresh commission was sent to his successor Guadice. In seventeen fourteen, Clement granted permission to Toro to come to Rome, but this was not carried out until 1716, when he was confined in the castle of San Angelo, and his trial dragged on until 1719. Sentence was pronounced July 27th with the same ceremonies as that of Carranza, the records of which were examined for the purpose. While the Inquisition thus freely admitted its incompetence to sit in judgment on bishops, yet, in the next case that occurred, it asserted complete jurisdiction. Manuel Abad Cuiepo was bishop-elect of Mexicon, Valladolid, in Mexico, where, although not consecrated, he was accepted by the chapter and governed the diocese as bishop, fulminating, in 1810, excommunication against Hidalgo and his followers, which was confirmed by the archbishop, Ligama y Beaumont. He was thus fully recognized as bishop, and it was probably the disturbed state of the land during the rebellion of Hidalgo and Morelos that prevented the assembling of bishops for his consecration. In the turbulence of the period he made enemies, and an anonymous denunciation was lodged against him with the Mexican tribunal. It collected evidence and forwarded it, August thirty first, eighteen fourteen, to the Suprema, which referred it to the Madrid Tribunal for investigation and report. The question as to the liability of bishops elect is rather intricate, dependent on whether there has been presentation by the king or election by the chapter and confirmation by the Pope, but it would seem that Quiepo was not subject to the Inquisition, nor were the charges matters of heresy. The Madrid Tribunal recognized this in its report, October twenty seventh, 1814, saying that he should be cited to answer, provided his office did not stand in the way, 
at the same time admitting that the charges were the work of enmity and that at most he had been careless in conduct and ministration. Quiepo returned to Spain, and on February 12, 1816, the Suprema ordered the tribunal to proceed. He refused to acknowledge the jurisdiction. The tribunal, May 16th, pronounced his reasons invalid, and the Suprema, September 2nd, took the high ground that no one could question its acts. When it has once declared itself a competent judge, no private person could dispute it or impede the execution of its decrees. This could only be done by an authority feeling its jurisdiction invaded, and, as there was none such in the kingdom, he was only prejudicing his case, which otherwise he could expedite and preserve the right of maintaining his claims by a protest which would be admitted. Quiepo offered to answer the charges extrajudicially, but this was refused, and he was told that if he did not present himself to answer them fully within three days, he would be prosecuted in contumacy. He yielded under protest and was spared the humiliation of appearing in the Inquisition, for Inquisitor Zoria was ordered to conduct the audiences in the convent where he was residing, but during them he was ordered not to leave it, and when they were over he was set at liberty, under command to present himself at the house of the fiscal whenever summoned. Thus, at the end of its career, the Inquisition successfully asserted its jurisdiction over a bishop, but he had his revenge. It was evidently no accident that, in the revolution of 1820, Cuiepo was made a member of the provisional junta of March 9th, which, on the same day, caused Fernando VII to decree the extinction of the Holy Office. End of Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 4 Recording by Kathleen Nelson, Austin, Texas, August 2010